everybody. Thank you so much for coming. I am Sean Doughty. I'm with the Dollar Bin. We will be recording this panel. Um, so if anyone needs to leave for any reason, um, it will be available uh, on the internet later on. You and I do have flyers somewhere. Um, you guys can pick those up if you'd like to. So yeah, yeah, welcome to Teaching Difficult Texts. Um, I'm going to put a pretty big disclaimer at the beginning of this. We will be talking about adult subject matter. Adult themes, adult content, sexism, racism, violence. So hopefully everybody in here is an adult who will be able to handle that subject matter. Um, our purpose here is to educate, not titillate. <laughs> Thank you. All right, so um, I came up with this panel idea a couple of years ago. We, we were on, I think it was the comics canon panel. We were talking about the books that you have to read. And a subject that kept coming up, um, especially talking about the spirit and Tintin, was racial stereotypes. And I am super interested in racial stereotypes and kind of how we view the other things like that. So I, I really wanted to do this panel to kind of address those subjects to figure out how we talk about these things, how we teach students these things. Um, and recently in South Carolina, there has been a lot of controversy with Fun Home. I don't know if anybody is aware of that. Definitely, definitely, definitely go to the mega panel on Saturday. They are going to be kind of interviewing one of the professors from College of Charleston about that. So please, 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 please check that out. All right, so I have introduced myself and the panel, um, and I would like the panelists to introduce themselves, kind of let us know a little bit more about you and kind of your viewpoint. I'm Dana Hayward. I'm Senior Manager Digital Content at HarperCollins Children's Books, and I spend a lot of my time actually converting our print books into digital these days, but um, we publish everything from ages zero to 16 to 18-year-olds. Year old, we uh, Divergence, one of our titles. And I am Mike Cobry. I uh, teach English at Queens University of Charlotte. I co-direct our graduate program in creative writing and have taught classes in comics and graphic novels for several years. They're always really popular classes. And uh, um, I guess we deal with difficult texts in there. And I'm Andy Kunka, and I teach English at the University of South Carolina Sumter, where I also teach many classes on comics for about the last 10 years or so, and also teach a lot of difficult texts. All right, so what is a difficult text? Um, in my mind, I kind of have always seen it as something that challenges the viewer. There's um, subject matter that, that's kind of outside of zone. How do you guys define it? I think the most basic thing, and, and the stuff that we're, we're sort of sensitized to, to worry about, is graphic material, particularly graphic material that deals with sexuality. Um, there is a certain difficulty in approaching that material, though that is usually the sort of self-consciousness generated by the professor rather than the reaction of the students. Do we get nervous easily? <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the things I'm 
find interesting in just looking up here at the books that are here is that uh, other than Watchmen, the rest are all nonfiction. And um, there's a, a scholar I really like named Hilary Shute who has said something, I'm paraphrasing her and probably going to butcher this, but that comics, the, the medium of comics is particularly suited for, for telling stories of historical trauma uh, because they can be unflinching in the face of that trauma. And if you look at uh, Mouse, we have Mouse up here. Uh, I, I brought Nat Turner, which is a book I want to talk about, Persepolis, March, and even Fun Home, which is you know, more autobiographical, it's still nonfiction, that, um, that the reader is, I think, really exposed to something that is hard to look away from, and I think that that's, that's what makes a teaching a comic with the difficult or graphic content that we're talking about here different than teaching uh, a prose work or poetry that, that deals maybe even with the same subject. I think subjects that are taboo are always difficult to bring up, and I don't know, we, we deal with... Um, I'm not an instructor, but a lot of our books deal with uh, sexuality and uh, gender discrimination and just all kinds of adversity. Do comics lend themselves to more controversy than prose? Only because of the visual image. Certainly, there is a lot of prose that deals with difficult subjects, mm-hmm. whether we're talking about uh, you know, various forms of sort of stereotypical representation or dealing with themes and content of sexuality and violence. But if you see the image, it has there's a kind of power and there's a kind of, uh, gosh, no pun intended, graphic quality to it that maybe brings things to the surface a little faster. And just a lot of people view comics as for kids, mm-hmm. especially Watchmen. There's people kind of geared towards that and then realize the graphic content in it. I know like a, it's been challenged a lot in libraries. People don't know where to shelve it. We shelve it for graphic novels. We do young adult stuff. Um, that seems to be a, a pretty a running theme. I know um, on the banned books week, for instance, Bone mm-hmm. is number 10 on the most challenged for smoking, drinking, uh, racism. I think also when you're teaching comics in class, just sort of the other side of this issue, particularly from my perspective as, as an English professor, you expect a big thick blocks of prose from a professor like me, and you come into a classroom and you bring comics in, and even for students who are not familiar with comics already, they're really curious. They're really interested in the form. And I think that gives you a certain credibility and gives you a certain credit already. Um, and that eases some of the issues of the difficult material in it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some interesting things going on here, a couple of different things that are coming to mind, because comics can be both, um, you know, well, the style of the, the drawing can make a big difference, too. I mean, we're looking up here again at, at Persepolis, which has such a, I think, deceptively simple style that then, you know, exposes, um, exposes the reader to things. I know uh, 
We, uh, at the University of South Carolina, we used Persepolis as the uh, first year reading text a few years ago. And I don't think it generated a lot of controversy the way Fun Home did at College of Charleston. Uh, but, and I, and I know of having uh, a niece who's a, who was, when she was a freshman in high school, had to read Persepolis in a class. And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, there are, there's, you know, a scene in there, for example, where uh, a man's being tortured and he's getting urinated on. And, and that's, uh, you know, but it's drawn in that, that style that I think is, makes it even more shocking, I think, than if it were a realistic uh, depiction of it because it, you know, you're kind of drawn into this um, more abstract art style, this, this more iconic world, and then you know, uh, you're hit with that. Uh, whereas um, you know, when I teach Nat Turner, uh, Baker's style is a little more realistic, but there's some really graphic violence in there too that, that often uh, unsettles students and gets to be the thing we talk about the most in that book. My experience with that, uh, probably the, the single most um, difficult text that I've used was Charles Byrne's graphic novel, Black Hole, hmm. which is a terrific graphic novel and, and beautifully weaves together some of the qualities of sort of 1950s science fiction and horror with um, a coming-of-age story uh, about being a teenager and sexuality and drugs, and there's metaphors about AIDS and all of those things. But Burns' style is, is, you know, it's a beautiful, sort of lush, illustrative style. And, of course, what I had forgotten, I thought, well, this is a great book. The students will love the story. It reads really easily. But I'd forgotten that the black hole of the title also refers to rather explicit imagery of female genitalia. And so as we got to that in class, it's like, oh, I forgot this was in here, which made for some interesting classes. It's right in your face, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Great book, though. I strongly recommend I've it. I've done the forgot that thing was in there until after I assigned the book. Oh, boy. <laughs> and the students rolled with it really well. I mean, I asked them, I said, you know, are you guys upset by this? And, and, and some of them said, well, it was a little tough, but... They were so invested in the class and they were so interested in, in learning about comics in different ways that it was, a, at best, a small obstacle. Um, we're going to get into approaches and success stories. Um, did, do any of you have any kind of failures? Did you want to talk about any books that you really, really wanted students to kind of really grab a hold of, but for whatever reason they couldn't relate to it? flat or maybe students were offended or have you been in a class or in a situation where, where one is so much more out of that material and students didn't quite grab a hold of it? Well, you know, honestly, as I mentioned it to, to you, Sean, before the, the, the session itself, I, I'm having a tough time thinking of a situation like that. And, and I think that's because certainly at least the students that I've dealt with, are, are really so interested in studying comics. Either they bring their interest to the classroom already, or it's a new form, and they're really fascinated by learning the visual language of comics. Um, and, and while they you know, react with different levels of interest to different works, um, I, don't, I can't really think of an example of one that's been an outright failure. Uh, probably in some ways the, the work the ones that I've had the most 
difficulty sort of generating student interest in, and I even use this loosely, have been more traditional comic stories. So I used The Dark Knight Returns, and, and it was fun to do. Everybody enjoyed it, but on rereading that, at least at that time, it's like, well, this is a really good Batman story. Um, and it didn't quite generate, the politics of that tend to be pretty limited, and it just didn't generate the level of sort of complex discussion that some of the other texts did. Well, to talk a little bit about what I do when I teach comics, I do something that might be a little bit subversive, which is we don't have on the books an actual class on comics at my university. So uh, I will take the kind of generic um, gen ed genre, genre classes like fiction or American literature and just do all comics in those. And so students signing up for those classes, unless they're already kind of in the know, don't know that they're taking a class on comics until either they show up the first day or they first go into the bookstore and see 11 different graphic novels on the shelves for the class. And, um, and so I do get some pushback every once in a while, though I think that the students who are really not going to want to do that figure out before the drop deadline that they don't want to do that. Uh, but I, I have had evaluations at the end of the semester that say, I really didn't want to, I, I didn't want to take a class on comics, and I wonder why you stuck it out then, if, if that's, that's the case. So, so kind of in general, I, I don't know if I have any specific difficult situation that I've ever had to deal with uh, where, a, where like a student objected to something, the, um, but accept that to object to the idea of comics in the first place. The other, the other thing, though, and when you talk about disappointments, it's more that when I teach a book one semester and I have a really great experience and students are giving me ideas that I'd never thought of before in the, in the, class, in, in the study of a particular book, and then every subsequent time I try to teach that, I try to reproduce that moment and it never, ever happens again. And so I really find myself having to change up the classes every couple semesters so that I'm not teaching the exact same books every time and try to kind of generate that new, that new excitement for myself, which I think gets into the students as well. I've, I can talk more about successes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've heard that uh, The Walking Dead is actually being used really successfully in, in college courses to uh, generate discussion about you know, what do you do in the case of a post-apocalyptic world and, and what do you do faced with impossible situations to, uh, and, and with this relentingly bleak uh, situation in a, and a, uh, uh, a bad guy who, who sort of succeeds and has no redeeming characteristics like a character like Dexter is, you know, the, the zombies are uh, marching on. But it generates discussion anyway. Yeah. I think one of the most, um, I, I wouldn't call this a, a, a failure, but certainly one of the most challenging experiences I've had, uh, apart from Black Hole, um, of teaching comics was one of the very first times I ever used comics in a class, which was in a general education class, and we used mouse in a unit on the Holocaust, and the students responded beautifully to the work. I mean, they're, again, the the nature of the medium draws students in. But we had also brought in um, a local woman who was a Holocaust survivor 
to mm. speak about her experiences, and she was deeply offended that we were using mouse. Mm. Uh, from the point of view, at least of this individual as a survivor, she felt the form and, of course, the translation of the story into this iconic imagery of, of comics was, was just an insult to the historical reality. So that was an interesting challenge. It was not something that actually sort of came to the surface in the class itself, but in conversations with her after she came to speak to the entire sophomore class at, at Queens, we had a conversation about that. Did you have a question? I do have a question. Um, because you're talking largely about the, the college courses, mm -hmm. but I'm wondering about uh, the uh, books that are being used in, say, high school and even younger. And I guess one of the things I'm curious about is, is at uh, Harper, how do they break down the different age groups so that uh, that would sort of apply the books to the age groups? Well, it's very interesting. We have, um, you know, there's early readers and then there's what you call a young adult. There's a new category that is being used called new adult, which is a little bit older than young adult, mm -hmm. people who are 18 plus who are still not fully uh, <laughs> involved in the world yet, but, uh, and who are still learning things. And so we're, we're starting to publish more on that side. And we don't have too many graphic novels coming out of our division. We did, did um, the Graveyard Book. And yay. Yeah. <laughs> Go Graveyard Book. And Yes, yes. Yeah. Craig Russell did some of the illustrations for that, and he did the Coraline graphic novel. And those are, those are sort of on the younger side. They skew a little bit younger. Yeah, I'm, I'm not all that familiar with how comics get taught in, in high schools or anything like that, but um, from what I understand, and somebody else may know more about this than I do, that there are graphic novels now in the common core, and uh, like Persepolis, I believe is is a part of the the Common Core, and I think that that's, um, I think that's great. I mean, I think, you know that uh, that I think points to the fact that we're probably past that point where we have to talk about oh, comics are literature now. You know, once the, <laughs> once the students are once you know freshmen in high school or whatever are made to read or forced to read comics, you've made it. Comics yeah. have made it. I did just observe one of, uh, our, one of my students who was student teaching in high school and who was doing the class on Persepolis, and his students just mm -hmm. rolled with it and seemed interested. Yeah, I had a, actually, that reminds me, is I had a high school teacher come to talk to me in my office the other day about the fact that when he teaches Shakespeare in the Midsummer Night's Dream, he brings in Sandman into the class, and they, they do a kind of small unit on the, the Sandman issue that deals with that. Um, so with books like Nat Turner and Tintin and The Spirit, how do you put that into a historical context? Uh, do you rely on outside sources, on forwards, if you're reprinting the material? And how do you, how do you approach that? Well, my, my research area, the area that I write about in the scholarship I do, is uh, racial caricatures and racial stereotypes in comics and through the history. And so I'm particularly... I mean, I teach the best of the spirit volume in the class, uh, in most of the classes I teach, and so we do deal with that. And the, putting that into a historical context is 
is, is interesting because there's the kind of easy thing to say is, well, this was happening all the time and we can't really blame somebody for, for doing this. But what I often do is bring in examples where it wasn't happening simultaneously with, you know, Eisner's the Spirit and, and, other, and other creators, you know, so I'll show the, the really bad examples that are part of the um, uh, caricature tradition and then those artists that were dealing in a more realistic register at the same time, um, you know, at the same time that, for example, that um, the Spirit was being published, uh, Fawcett's publishing, you know, Joe Lewis comics, for example. Um, but there are also fictional characters that are drawn, African-American fictional characters that are drawn in realistic style at the time. And then um, pairing that, pairing, but oh, one thing more about the best of the spirit, I think it's interesting that when DC selected the selections that are in that collection, it's only really the first two stories, the origin of the spirit and the, and the second story that have Ebony White in them. The rest of the stories are non-ebony stories, and I wonder how much that went into the decision-making process about what consists of the best of the spirit. Um, the, the back cover of that book has a quote from Neil Gaiman that says, the Citizen Kane of comics. Uh, I teach film, too, and I, I more refer to the spirit as the birth of a nation of comics. <laughs> because... There are technical things and there's wonderful things to, to, that Eisner was doing that was pushing the medium forward, but you constantly have to acknowledge the fact that there's this other thing there that's, that's really the elephant in the room. Did you say and, that Eisner was still alive? What? Did you say that when Eisner was still alive? Did I say that when Eisner was still alive? Did you say that when Eisner was still alive? Or Gaiman. Yeah, yeah I think so. <laughs> um, and then, um, but anyway, so then, then one of the reasons I like having Nat Turner in the same class is that um, uh, Kyle Baker really, really draws on the illustration tradition from that time period and he uses or adapts uh, illustrations, of, um, like newspaper illustrations of Nat Turner for, that were contemporary with the event and that also helps, and, but he also draws some characters in a kind of caricature style. So, so one of the things I talk about in that class is how Baker's not just dealing with Nat Turner, he's dealing with the history of representation in that book, and it, I think it makes it an interesting companion piece then to that earlier stuff. Yeah, I, I, I've had comparable experiences as well. Um, I've used the best of the spirit, and there is still that sort of difficult conversation about Ebony. More recently, the last couple of times I've done classes on comics, I use a really terrific anthology, Superman, the first wave of comic book mm. superheroes, yeah. which is 1938. Uh, and it's a bunch of characters from uh, a public domain, still done by people like Eisner and Kirby and uh, Jack Cole and others. And there are outrageous stereotypes on every page of that, most notably Jack Cole's character, The Claw, I think I'm mm -hmm. getting this right, who is you know a giant, distorted oriental with all of the just wildly exaggerated characteristics. And, and in talking about those things, um, I try to talk about sort of the history of representation, um, not only in comics, but in all kinds of form of, of cultural activity. I'm mean, going back to Mark Twain and Huckleberry Finn and issues like that. And, and, and the point, students are sophisticated enough to see the material in its context and understand it in its context. 
But one of the points that I try to make, and whether I'm talking about these issues in terms of comics or in terms of traditional literature like, uh, like Huck Finn, is that we sometimes tend to think that on you know, one side of human life, there's politics and there's law and there's economics and there's all this serious hard stuff. And on the other side is the frilly stuff of culture. But what I try to emphasize over and over in comics or one way of doing this is that it is that frilly stuff of culture that makes possible the policies, the legal policies and the economic policies and the political policies. It, it is no accident, for instance, that the laws and customs that mandated segregation were called Jim Crow, which was taken from a minstrel show act. So culture and politics and law and economics, I mean, all that stuff just merges together. And, and, and the power of representation to make acceptable forms of discrimination is, is huge. And I think that's one of the, to, to jump forward, a little bit, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in more detail later. That's that's one of the reasons why um, Fun Home is so important, and particularly the recent controversy about Fun Home is so important. But we can get to that one a little later. I think that for younger students, uh, younger than college age students, it might be more important to frame things mm -hmm. before they uh, start reading the material. I, I think that's very true. Uh, I think it would be a lot tougher whether we're talking about teaching comics that deal with these sort of images or, again, traditional literature. This is one reason why nobody teaches Huckleberry Finn in high school anymore mm -hmm. it is because it is harder at that age to understand the complexities and understand the issues bound up in this, this representation. Uh, one thing about Kyle Baker, just to, to second a point that Andy made, I've had students in the past read um, Captain America Truth, the yeah. great series, mm -hmm. great, great little miniseries, which just mm -hmm. vanished. And I had students come to me saying, you know, these drawings are awfully stereotypical. They're really offensive to me. I said, well, Kyle Baker's African-American. So that made for an interesting conversation there. Yeah, yeah one, you know, we've, we're talking a lot about African-American representation, but there's also, you know, another book that's popularly taught in high schools and colleges is... Uh, Ying Luan Yang's American-Born Chinese, which um, is another book that I think he's doing something even more, more overtly than Baker is doing in Nat Turner of, of dealing with the history of representation. Um, I know uh, the scholar Jared Gardner has a really good essay on how uh, Baker, or excuse me, how Yang is adapting at, you know, early political cartoons, uh, stereotypes of Asians, like quoting them directly in, in the character of Cousin Chinky. And uh, and that I would say American-born Chinese is additionally a difficult text, and one of the things, and I, so I'm always surprised that, that it was it was what it won or it was nominated for a National Book Award in the young readers category, um, because it is a book that doesn't let the reader off the hook. And when when Cousin Chinky, if you are not familiar with it, there's a character named Cousin Chinky who shows up in in uh, part of the book that's that's designed to be like a sitcom that's called every, I apologize for this, Everybody Rubs Chinky. And, and he is this, this really, really graphic, you know, really, really caricatured Asian stereotype uh, who carries in his luggage in, um, in uh, Chinese food to go containers and, uh, and sings um, uh, She Bang in the school cafeteria. Um, and 
and it's set up as a, like I said, a sitcom, and so there's a laugh track to it. And so I ask my students, who's laughing? Who are the ones that are laughing at this? And when they realize it's them, that, ba or that Yang is really making them complicit in the stereotype, and it's uncomfortable. Um, so I really, but I really appreciate that he, that he does that, and not, you know, not make it easy for the reader to get away from it. Has there ever been a book where you wanted to teach it, but you decided that maybe it was too graphic, too violent, or too much rape? There's a lot of rape in comics. A lot. Um, just like going through researching for this, like Watchmen's a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, Killing Joke is pretty, pretty violent. Black hole. I won't well, touch yeah, black yeah, hole. Like black hole. Like, no. uh, I, I, I kind of learned my lesson with that. It was fun. Um, I haven't shied away from teaching anything. Certainly not on those grounds. Um, in terms of figuring whether a, a text will work for a class, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of how quickly can you go through the text? Is there enough level of complexity to sustain a, a discussion for however many class sessions it will be? Uh, certainly, though, when I've used Watchmen, and I've used that a lot of times, um, that's, that's a regular standby. Um, I've had a, a fair number of comments from students about the portrayal of women in that and about what happens to women in the book. And most of the time, controversial material is actually some of the best stuff to teach because it generates the most intense discussions in the classroom. And those are the good class days, even if they're a little uncomfortable. But I mean, certainly those issues do come up. I can't think of anything that's censored. I haven't censored anything. <laughs> we gave Watchmen to 16-year-old uh, uh, nephews. Didn't have a problem with it. They, they got it. I think it does depend on the student and the audience. And if, I mean, you want to generate conversation, assume that they are willing, then you shouldn't shy away from and, and, and I think in terms of choosing the material, you're, you're looking either at kind of the overall quality and complexity of the material, um, or you're looking at it's particularly with you know, things like the best of the spirit or Superman, its ability to represent a particular historical moment. Um, I think with the best of the spirit, you've got some great, obviously great comic book stuff in there as well, but a lot of stuff that's really difficult and stereotypical for its time. When teaching, do some of you have taught Fun Home. Has anybody taught blankets? Yeah. I've had students do projects on blankets. I'm taught. Um, how do students respond to kind of the sexual coming of age in a lot of comics? Have you taught anything like that or approached that subject? And the last time I taught Fun Home, I, I had a really large class. Students are interested in comics, so I kept raising the class, raising the cap for the class till we got well above 30. And some of the outliers in the class snickered a little bit at some of the images in Fun Home. Um, that really hasn't been a problem. And I think just to editorialize for a moment about the issues in South Carolina with the College of Charleston, um, the response from a handful of state members of the state legislature was ridiculous. And um, I mean, it was you know, just a textbook case of um, 
really reacting stupidly and censoring something for all the wrong reasons. But I think what, what is really disturbing about Fun Home to a certain portion of its readership is not the isolated examples of graphic imagery in that. Any, and, and here is a wonderful testament to the stupidity of a certain brand of politician. Let's just leave it at that. I'll, I'll, I'll try not to be too partisan here. <laughs> you can all fill in the blank for me here, right? So, uh, you know, they're, they're looking at this and saying, oh my gosh, their images are of sexual activity. This is shocking. Anybody who thinks a college freshman is not intimately familiar with that imagery already is just, you're, 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 you join the Flat Earth Society. You're detached from reality. What's shocking about Fun Home, particularly for people who are not coming into that class and reading that text with a certain sympathy already for the struggles of the character on, characters over sexual orientation. What's shocking is not the portrayal of sexual activity. What's shocking is that if you read that book, by the end of the book, at least, if not well before that, is that those characters that you want to brand as different have been so thoroughly humanized. Their struggles are so much like struggles of anybody of any sexual orientation. That's the shocking. That's the scary part. And I think at some level that those legislators will never be conscious of because they do not have the ability to be conscious of this. That's what they're reacting to. It's not any sort of graphic imagery because, you know, click your mouse and you'll find mm -hmm. that graphic imagery in a fraction of a second. It is the fact that the characters are humanized in a way that whatever your political, religious persuasion, whatever your sexual orientation, if you're a sympathetic reader, or if you're a serious reader, you're going to empathize with those characters. You might not agree with the choices they make, but you will empathize with those characters. They are fully human. Um, and, and, and frankly as well, I promise I'll stop in a second, um, it's such a beautiful book because it incorporates so much lovely imagery and references to literature, and it's so smart in that way, too. So I hope those <laughs> legislators are properly embarrassed. Sorry. Um, just to, to add one, the, the books that I deal with, I think, where the, con the discussion of sexuality comes up the most is when I teach the Hernandez brothers, and I use Heartbreak Soup and The Girl from Hoppers, as the introduction to the Hernandez brothers for, for my students. And what I'm always surprised and heartened by is how comfortable the students make me in talking about this stuff, that I go into talking especially about you know, Maggie and Hopi's relationship and the girl from Hoppers with a kind of anxious anticipation that somebody's going to complain about it. And invariably, I have students who, who just say, this, it's no big deal. We're okay. <laughs> We're 18. And, I'm like, <laughs> and, and, um, and so that, that kind of I, reinforces for me what, what Mike said about the wrongheadedness of the uh, South Carolina legislature and teaching in South Carolina. You know, we're, we are getting, um, getting a lot of pushback on, uh, on these things, uh, specifically on, you know, on teaching stuff like this. But, um, but yeah, but I mean, you know, my experience overall in dealing with sexuality is that the students made me more comfortable in talking about it than I was initially. 
I think students are, uh, those students are getting younger and younger and more comfortable with these <laughs> things. And also, I, I was talking with my husband about this earlier, and that, that different regions of the country are going to have completely different situations. So, um, you know, you might find kids in New York, college students in New York, no problem. You know, hey, what are you talking about? That's no, not a big deal. But uh, other areas. Yeah, I've used the girl, the girl from Hoppers, too, and mm -hmm. it's, it's fantastic. But the challenge of that is not at all dealing with the sexuality. The challenge is what seems to be the episodic nature yeah. of the storytelling and the fact that you're joining um, this incredibly long, beautifully complex narrative sort of in midstream. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, I've got one last question, and then we'll throw it out to the audience. Um, so what is your favorite difficult text? Which one do you really gravitate toward? I'll go ahead, since I brought Nat Turner with. Uh, Nat Turner I, is my favorite difficult text for a lot of reasons, one of which is, is that it, not just in terms of its subject matter, but it pushes the boundaries of what is a comic. and so. We get to this in class, and, and you know, students get excited because the first 60 pages have no words in them. And they're like, oh, I can fly through that. But they don't realize how, just how, um, how, how much they have to pay attention to those things. And then, uh, if you're not familiar with it, uh, the, the text of, of the book is um, the historical document that's known as the Confession of Nat Turner, which um, has a lot of controversy and questions about it, and and we get to talk about how Baker's images aren't a direct adaptation of that text. They often present information that contradicts what's in the images, and so we have to talk about things like which do you privilege, the words or the pictures, and that gets into a discussion of comics in general. What do you what do you privilege, if, if you privilege one over the other? And then there's. Uh, there's incredible amount of, of violence in this book too. There's an early scene where uh, one of the one of the slaves who ends up par as part of Nat Turner's rebellion is is being very friendly and playing with uh, you know a little white boy who's the son of his uh, of the slave master. And when the revolution happens, that same slave cuts the kid's head off, and the head goes flying through the air in an image, and the the face the kid's face is still smiling because he was really excited to see his friend. Who chops his head off with an axe, and that is a very disturbing image, and it is not one that that readers can then say that you know that Nat Turner, Nat Turner's Rebellion, is a heroic endeavor because there are these atrocities that happen on both sides, and so um, so that makes students you know students want to, as again students who are also familiar with you know superhero texts want a comic that has a very clear moral good guys and bad guys can be divided, and, and Baker doesn't let you do that. Uh, hard to pick out a favorite difficult text, but I'll just say right now it's fun home. I look forward to doing that again in a course over the summer, and I hope to pick a fight with whoever wants to have a fight. <laughs> <laughs> I guess since I haven't read Fun Home yet, yet, uh, I would have to say Watchmen probably. I tend to lean more toward fiction and mm -hmm. nonfiction. I read a lot of nonfiction too, though. And Watchmen works great in a whole bunch of contexts. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I use it as a kind of introduction to some of the concepts of postmodernism. Mm -hmm. It works beautifully. Mm -hmm. uh, my question is, um, do you think black characters in modern day 
comics carry extra special burden than their white counterparts do. Um, for example, um, in the latest 52 book, uh, Mr. Terrific is on the cover lifting weights with an earring in his ear with a tattoo on his back. I had a friend of mine, oh, God, you know, it's, he's stereotypical now. Um, Black Lightning. Uh, he always, every so often, he always had to defend his name. You know, not like Black Widow or any other white character calls himself black. You know, it's, it's a non-issue, but with him, it always comes up, you know. I mean, why are you calling yourself Black Lightning? And third, uh, Amanda Waller. You know, when, you know, she was a heavy set, you know, strong, angry black woman. And then DC changed her to this skinny female, very good looking. And like, okay, why did they do that for, you know? Is, is that, is, my question is, do you feel like black characters, the burden that's put on them, it's time is their growth in comic spirit? I think there's probably more sensitivity on the part of creators and publishers. I'm, I'm just guessing here in terms of, of any representation of, um, of any minority group. You know, on the other hand, I think particularly in American history, um, going back to Nat Turner and so many mm -hmm. other sources, uh, those issues over specifically over historical interactions between African Americans and, and American culture. I mean, that goes, you know, that goes to the heart of, of, of the Republic and the heart of our history. So, so maybe there is a special burden there. Um, I don't know. I'd have to think more about contemporary comics to think if there is that burden there. Um, it's a really interesting question. I've been thinking actually a lot about that image of Mr. Terrific and that that you're describing, I think, is the, what the Future's End weekly series and the way Mr. Terrific is depicted in the comic as this kind of what uh, hip hop mogul that uh, goes against, I think, a lot of the potential that that character had all along as being, you know, this this industrialist and the, you know, what, whatever he was. I, was he the third smartest man in the DC universe? Um, that that I think that um, that the that was the foundation for the character when he was in JSA. I thought he was a fascinating character in, in that series, and I'm you know wondering what's going on with him now in that in that that future's end. But I, I, I do think I do think you're right. I, I don't I don't know if there's there's other, again, and that's that's one that I had hoped for wouldn't be doing this, and it's doing it that there are a lot of especially headlining African-American characters who don't carry the burden of being an African-American character uh, that, you know, we should be passed by now. Hi. Um, I also teach uh, creative writing and comics at uh, Georgia Regents University. And my question was regarding a different kind of difficulty in teaching, and that's in regards to the politics of the piece in general. Uh, you brought up that you know different areas of the country are going to have different reactions. Mm -hmm. uh, the very first year I taught a comics-based class, I used uh, Joe Sacco's Palestine, um, Joe, I remember, Joe Stassen's The Ograshes, and uh, Edgar Caret's Pizzeria Kamikaze. Mm -hmm. And while we had a pretty good conversation about the art in general, 
it was a much more different conversation when it came to uh, discussing suicide bombing in Israel, discussing uh, you know the war in the Balkans, and without you know admitting to my students that you know I don't have a degree in history, I, I'm not well versed in, in you know, European you know, warfare. Um, they tended to impose their own sort of, you know, American ide- uh, ideology about how we should do things. And the class sort of like, you know, just, uh, it, it, it fell apart, you know, really quickly in ways that, you know, discussion on Watchmen and V for Vendetta did not. So I was wondering, had you had some sort of similar experience that you thought, this book is just something I can't touch? I, I'm sorry, one, one, one more quick example. Um, the, the the book about Hiroshima, I can't remember the. It, no, not Trinity. Barefoot again, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, we see what happens from a survivor's point of view, and we we had to keep talking about how Americans were complicit in this sort of like you know this destructive moment, and instead of engaging the uh, the text in the way that I hope they would, they became suddenly very more defensive about. America's role in the entire thing, and these people should do these, you know, uh, should um, maintain their affairs in, in, in this way or another. The same thing happened with, uh, with the Palestine book and the, uh, the book on Rwanda. So, uh, again, has this come up in any of your classes? It has not come up in the context of dealing with comics, um, and it depends for me on the level of the course that I'm teaching and and the, the type of student who is registered for the class. Uh, if I'm doing an upper-level literature class, I don't have those issues. But if I'm doing a freshman or sophomore-level general education class, whatever the text, that stuff can come up. And there is um, there's a real limited perspective on politics and history that students have. And, and uh, it takes a lot to sort of uh, crack that open. It comes up with Persepolis, you know, that, I mean, but, uh, but I always hope by the end, by the time we get to the end of that, that students have realized that you know, one of the things this book should be doing for them is humanizing the Iranian people so that they don't, um, you know, they don't carry, the students don't carry on those stereotypes that they have of the, you know, Iran is the enemy and so on. And, you know, many do, many don't. First of all, I didn't know that about Mr. Terrific. It's really depressing now. <laughs> I'm bummed out. <laughs> uh, but I had a question uh, about your class on uh, racial caricatures. Um, you know, you mentioned you use more historical texts, and then the modern one you mentioned was Nat Turner. Um, what other modern texts like do you look at, and do you look at anywhere? Uh, you know, they're not, I guess, more complex or positive examples like Nat Turner, but like just where it's just straight. Uh, you know stereotyping that you find problematic or what what modern comics do you uh, talk about I guess I don't I don't know if I talk about a lot of problematic modern comics because where where we tend to get to in that that history is really how contemporary creators are dealing with that history and so um, but you know I I, I can show things that do demonstrate um, demonstrate that, uh, that the, some stereotypes are still going on. They may have changed form, but 
that, th that those stereotypes are still going on. But I, I only generally would use, um, you know, visual examples maybe on an overhead or something. I wouldn't have them read. Uh, but, you know, on occasion I brought in, for example, uh, Brian Azzarello and Richard Corbin's Luke Cage miniseries, which uh, is, again, kind of transforming Luke Cage into a, um, a hip-hop gangsta and, you know, Azzarello's writing that Future's End series, but uh, so I have my suspicions about that. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that, uh, but yeah, so I don't have them read something that I would say is still problematic in the modern day, but I do definitely show them images. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, honestly, I just haven't. I, I haven't used material that 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 deals with those images. Um, um, I tend not to do much of sort of mainstream contemporary comics in the classes. I'm I'm typically trying to cover so much history in the first part of the class and just look at a few select graphic novels in the second half. Um, the one work that I've used, but I can't think quite of where it intersects this, uh, once in a while I've used the first volume of The Ultimates, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Miller and Hitch, and nobody really talked about Samuel Jackson appearing in that. And it was just to sort of think about the style of modern comics and how to set the template for so many of the movies that we're seeing that just haven't engaged that issue. But it's a good one to engage. My question is just about the, the whole idea of using comics. So I teach comics um, in, in freshman composition classes. I'm lucky in that um, I'm encouraged and actually required to, to use, do multimodal composition, like teach oral and visual and, and nonverbal rhetoric and digital rhetoric as well as just traditional writing. But I wonder if there's a sense in which, in which students or even, even like other faculty or administrators are resistant to the use of comics because they have this sense that English is supposed to be just all about learning word-based literacy. Like, is the, I mean, is, is that a sense in which comics can be kind of a, a dangerous text, a type of text to use? Um, I haven't really gotten that from colleagues. Uh, when I was first using Mouse, um, it was in the context of, of a general education course that was team taught uh, by a whole group of faculty, and, and I brought the, the material to them, and and tried to give them uh, some sort of grounding in teaching it, and they had a great time with it. They loved doing it. Um, my sense is we are really beyond those issues, and there are so many other threats to the traditional <laughs> humanities um, that the incorporation of comics in the class is, it just hasn't sparked any of that resistance. Yeah, you know, um... I haven't. I have had a very supportive department when it comes to this, and the English, among the English faculty, um, and in fact, in USC Columbia, they've even provided money for um, uh, doing a, doing a symposium on comics and so on. And so that that's that's been great. The pushback I've gotten have been from non-English teachers who, you know, uh, don't need to be bothering and worrying about how English is taught. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't worry, for example, that my students can't figure out their grades <laughs> mathematically, so I'm not going to go and ask the math teacher what they're doing. Um, not that I've had any math teachers that have said this. Or, um, anyway, but um, so I haven't gotten a lot of 
so, so that's the kind of pushback I've gotten. But you know, Aaron, the um, you know, my when I think about my own career, you know, my PhD, my dissertation was on modern British literature, 20th century British literature, and I know that there's a lot of people who are doing comics and comic studies now who are kind of in that, you know, they started out doing something else, and for me in particular, getting tenure was a big, important part of all that, that, you know, once I got, I think, the semester after I got tenure is the first semester I taught comics, uh, where I don't think I would have had a problem before then, but I just knew I wouldn't have a problem after that, so, uh, and I think that's hap that a lot of a lot of the people I've talked to have had similar experiences. Well, how fantastic that you guys are using comics as teaching tools. I would love to have had graphic novels be part of the curriculum when I was at school. Wow. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I, I, I will say, and I, I've repeated this story a lot of times, that one of my favorite moments as a teacher ever in my career uh, one semester when I was doing one of my classes on comics and graphic novels and I came into the classroom a little bit early and the students were there and they're looking at books and there was a guy in the back of the room looking at his Shakespeare book and I was able to say to him, hey, Aaron, you put away your Shakespeare right now. You take out your comic. And that to me was like the greatest moment of my teaching career. It's all been downhill after that. It's awesome. He's never appreciated that I've repeated that story year after year. So. Okay, so it is 5.30. You guys have time for maybe one more question? No. That's, I did mean 6.30. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I. Um, okay, for a final question, um, something else that's been in the news recently. What are your thoughts on trigger warnings? Um, if you, um, trigger warnings are something when you're teaching a material, mm -hmm. something that has like, rape or something to say, hey, this has difficult material, you know, it may be triggering to people who have experienced this for your post-traumatic stress disorder. I was wondering if that's a conversation you've been a part of, what your thoughts are, um, and then for Dana, if that sort of come into the publishing world. I know that New Adult is kind of that, hey, by the way, New Adult has sex in it. It so is, that, it is, It kind yeah. of does that for you, and I was wondering. It's, it's always got to be clearly spelled out in the book flaps and on the back cover, you know, before you put it out there. <laughs> I, 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 it, it's, an, it's a difficult problem, right? Because I, I want to be sympathetic to those, those students for whom uh, some kind of personal trauma can become problematic, but those situations where that has happened have, where, where a student has come to me about something like that have been more to do with the student being kind of relieved that someone else was articulating how they, they felt and that the comic was was more powerful for them than that. The the main problem I have with, with trigger warnings in general is that it's a slippery slope. You, okay, if, you know, it's one thing to be sympathetic to someone who's, who's suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. It's another thing to be um, having a, tri a trigger warning that is... Um, that I don't believe that, that challenges my beliefs. And that's what I'm, college is supposed to be doing, so if you're not going to, uh, if, if you don't want your beliefs challenged, then there are other places to go other than college. So, um, so I worry that, that that's the motive behind trigger warnings more than the, the traumatic aspect of it. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. Um, I, I have not thought about it all that much. I, I actually do tend to be, 
a little bit more sensitive about the material when I'm doing comics, and maybe it is because of the visual representation of, of, of some of these things. Um, and, and so, you know, I'll make sort of a general warning as I'm doing again this semester that with Fun Home, with Watchmen, with other works like that, there is mature material there, so just be aware of that. If that's going to be a problem, talk to me about it. And then there are times, as with Black Hole, it slips my mind entirely, and suddenly there I am looking at the image on the page. I say, uh, guys, <laughs> you want to talk about this? <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for coming. Thank you to our panelists. Um, I am, I'm so sorry that we didn't get to every question, but if um, anybody has anything to ask these guys, I'm sure they'll probably stick around. And anybody I, have any last Yeah, comments? I just forgot when I introduced myself to mention my podcast. I do a podcast called The Comics Alternative with... Uh, my pal Derek Royal. We call ourselves the two guys with PhDs talking about comics. Uh, it's available at comicsalternative.com where we do reviews and interviews. And hopefully, I think this panel will be, uh, we'll, we'll put this panel up on there too. So uh, please check that out. And I have bookmarks up here if anybody wants the information on that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for being nice to me. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah.